Let's turn this morning to Romans chapter 1. Speaking of God's power, we come to Romans chapter 1 today. The well-known phrase that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. So let's look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to read these well-known theme verses of this book, verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1. Definitely one of those passages that as a pastor you, you get very excited about preaching, you look forward to it, and of course at the same time, no way for one sermon to sufficiently tackle all that God says here and the way these verses have been preached and used throughout the year. So we'll just look simply at what God says, let his truth stand, and rejoice therein. So Romans 1, and let's read verses 14 leading up to our passage today. Let's read verses 14 through 17. Hear now God's word. Romans 1, verse 14. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask once again for his help. Father, these are foundational truths. So give us your help to rightly explain them simply, yet in all their power and fullness, and use your truth to do your work. If that is to save today, to bring someone to faith in Christ. If that's to edify, to strengthen and build up someone's faith or to teach them truths, whatever, if it's to correct us, if it's to comfort us, whatever it, it may be, help us to hear by your spirit and may Christ be precious to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, there is a situation where the Assyrian Empire is attacking the southern kingdom of Judah. And Assyria was the empire that just a few years before had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So they're the dominant world power. And since then, they had begun to push south. I think Egypt was really their ultimate target, but you've got to go through Judah to get to Egypt. So they put tribute on the southern kingdom. They put restrictions on them and harassed them. But when the Assyrian emperor died and a new emperor was gaining the throne, rebellion began to break out in different parts of the empire. That's common during these transition power times in empires. And so rebellion breaks out, the new emperor finally gains the throne, and he's got to go put these rebellions down, restore order in the empire. And so Judah finds themselves under siege. King Hezekiah is being threatened by the Assyrian army. And the field commander actually comes up to Jerusalem at one point and taunts the king and asks him, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? 
They didn't just lay down and, and open the gates and say, come on in and you can have your money back. They resisted. And so the army says, how are you confident that you can resist the mighty Assyrian empire? His exact words, on whom are you depending that you rebel against me? And then in a further taunt, the commander answers his own questions. He knows who Judah is trusting, their alliance with Egypt. And he says in verse 6, look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Oh, you've made a deal with Egypt. Well, what good is Egypt? They're a broken stick. And if you lean on that stick, it'll break and pierce your own hand. It's going to stab you in the hand. So bottom line, the commander is telling them, your confidence is misplaced. What you are trusting will disappoint you. And when it does, you're going to suffer shame and defeat. So what about us? That was a battle long ago, but that was our forefathers in the faith. We name not be under siege by the Assyrians, but what are you facing today where you need confidence? What are you facing where you're depending on something? I'm thinking of the spiritual realm, your soul, your salvation. I'm thinking of how you live life and what your goals are and how you go about your life every day. On what are you depending? In what is your confidence? And today's passage gives us what our confidence should and can be. The well-known statement of Paul where he writes in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul, as an apostle, as a preacher, and as a Christian, he faced taunts from the Romans. He faced mockery and rejection from his own countrymen, for his family. And despite all that, he expressed his confidence in the good news about Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And in fact, when Paul uses the negative phrase there, not ashamed, he's using it in order to emphasize the positive idea. So I am not ashamed means I have great confidence in the gospel. The gospel that Paul has been unpacking for us already in this book that he introduced in the opening verses, the gospel that defined his existence. And the gospel that he's so eager to come preach to the Romans to help them in their walk with God and to build a relationship with them, that gospel is the ultimate basis of his confidence, both in life and in death. And the beauty of the passage in front of us today is Paul will tell us why he is so confident in the gospel and why you can be as well, why this church can be confident in the gospel. And before we jump into the exact reasons, not only is Paul giving us that idea, here's why I'm confident in the gospel. He, in these verses, is actually giving us the theme of the entire book of Romans. What is Romans all about? It is all about the gospel. How it reveals God's character. How it reveals his saving power. How it gives men and women a right standing with God. How it transforms people's lives. How it powerfully saves, even we don't think it's working. 
how it fulfills the Old Testament, how it depends on the faithfulness of God and how humans can enjoy this gospel by faith alone. Every one of those ideas is actually in these verses. That's why I said there's so much here. We can't get to it all today, but the beauty of this study is Paul will return to these themes over and over and over again. All of those themes will make their appearance as we go through this book. So as we stand here, really at the edge of the dock, ready to sail out into the heart of the letter, we start by considering our confidence in the gospel. What do you trust as you go about your life day by day? What do you trust for your salvation? How confident are you that things are right between you and God? What do you trust for your acceptance by others? How confident are you in your identity in Christ? And what do you trust for the well-being of your church? How confident are you in the power of the gospel for our Christian ministry here? Well, let's tackle those questions and consider from these two verses our confidence in the gospel. What kind of confidence does the gospel give us? Two areas today. First, confidence that frees from shame. Verse 16, confidence that frees from shame. Paul begins, as we've already said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, when you hear those words, if you've been around preaching long enough, perhaps you hear Paul saying, the gospel does not embarrass me. I am not ashamed to proclaim the gospel. Now, that is part of Paul's point. We're going to get there. But I don't think that's his starting point. I think Paul's first concern when he utters these words is to highlight first the reliability of the gospel. The fact that the gospel provides the ground for his confidence. It's ground zero for him spiritually. And because it's his foundation, therefore, he is free from embarrassment. So let me, let me tease that out. Let me explain what I mean. Listen to Romans 9.33. Paul will cite Isaiah, which reads like this. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So if you don't believe in the stone, you stumble. But the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And it comes across similarly in English, put to shame, not ashamed. And it's almost the exact same word as well in the original language. The idea you can hear from Romans 9 is this. The one who trusts in Christ will never be disappointed. The one who relies on the stone, the stone will never fail them. And when I said Paul cites Isaiah, it's almost the same section as what I mentioned just a minute ago, where they're being taunted by the Assyrians. Who is Israel trusting to deliver them? If they trust in people, they will be disappointed. But if they trust in the Lord, they will never be put to shame. That is, they will never be disappointed. So Paul opened this letter by highlighting the fact I'm set apart for the gospel. This gospel that focuses on Jesus Christ. 
this Jesus who is humbly born as the son of David and now declared the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, the son that is now claiming the nations for himself through the preaching of the gospel. And I'm eager to join that mission, Paul is saying. So in order to tell them why that is, why he's so eager, why he's so invested in the gospel, and in order to make sense of all that he's going to say, this is where he starts. I have great confidence in the gospel. It's reliable. You can trust it. It's grounded in something outside of yourself. And it's worth existing for. It's worth living for. It's worth not being embarrassed about. So now the question we should ask ourselves is, okay, why is Paul so confident in the gospel? You can be confident and be wrong, right? You've played basketball maybe with somebody who was really confident in their shot and they kept shooting, but they didn't need to keep shooting, did they? Someone need to take that ball away from them. They had irrational overconfidence. You can be confident, you can be wrong. Why is Paul so confident? Because, he says in the rest of verse 16, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the to the Gentile. Paul is confident in the gospel because through the gospel, God powerfully saves everyone who believes. So I just referred to verse 4. It describes Jesus as appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That is what God says about Jesus. He is my son in power. He has authority over the nations. So the son of power mediates his power, the power of God, for salvation. That's what Jesus is doing right now. Do you ever wonder that? What is God up to? What is Jesus doing right now? Reigning the nations, taking them captive by his power, For his glory. The Lord of the universe uses his power to save his people. And that's why Paul can be so confident. This message, it's the weapon of the ruler God. Of course it will accomplish its purpose that God sends it forth for. And that purpose, according to this verse, is salvation. Now what do we mean when we talk about people being saved? A very basic word but one worth defining. It's very simple. To be saved is to be delivered, to be rescued. Remember when Peter was in the boat and he saw the Lord out on the water and he went out to the Lord, but then he began to sink? What did he cry out to Jesus? Lord, save me. Lord, don't let me drown. Rescue me. What did Christ do? He pulled him up out of the water. He rescued him. He saved him. So what is it that Christ saves us from here? Well, Paul will start the next section by stating in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And we'll explore that passage in depth in the coming weeks. But the basic idea is this, because of our sinful acts, Because of our evil hearts, evil hearts that turn away from the creator God. 
and misuse ourselves and his creation and sin against his law because of that wickedness, wickedness against God and wickedness against others, we are in danger of God's wrath. It is already being revealed. You can suffer God's wrath right now. It's not the fire and brimstone yet. But God can actively pour out wrath now, spiritual torments and what have you. And on the last day, God will definitively reveal his wrath, judgment, lake of fire, what we think of when we talk of hell and where you may go when you die if you don't know Jesus Christ. That wrath is real, it's in effect, and it will only get worse if you are an unbeliever. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to save us from that wrath. That's what he delivers you from. That's what's on the table when God puts the gospel before you. Your sins will be forgiven and you will be rescued from judgment. It's hard to conceive, but either you're already going to go forward to the last day and have God declare you saved, or God will just go ahead and bring that judgment into the present when you believe and say you're saved. You trust him now, you are secure from judgment, both now and in the age to come. And that is why Paul has great confidence in the gospel. On the basis of the work of Christ, everyone who believes that good news will be saved from death. And in fact, notice here at the end of verse 16, how Paul emphasizes just how accessible The gospel is. It brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Historically, the gospel came to Israel first. Jesus was a Jew. He ministered the good news to his fellow countrymen. Paul is a Jew. He points to himself as an example of the gospel working among the Jews. True, many Jews did not believe. Jesus came unto his own. His own didn't receive him. But in a, in, a, in a beautiful display of God's sovereignty, that's how he now takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And he is saving record numbers of Gentiles. God is fulfilling his saving purposes to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So Paul's point there is the gospel is for everyone. And interestingly, it's this idea of accessibility that actually starts to get us to the idea of Paul not being embarrassed about the gospel. Let me explain it this way. This is how one commentator puts it. Paul assumes that some people might question whether the gospel, with a message that cuts across social boundaries is appropriate for the city of Rome, whose ethos glorified those boundaries and the power structure they represented. What that means is Rome had accomplished a lot and took great pride in her accomplishments. I mean, Rome could just be brutal to those who were beneath them on the social scale. And here comes Paul offering the gospel to everyone, rich and poor, slave and free, And he makes the terms of admission the same. It's faith. It's not your accomplishments. There's one door. Everyone walks in the door the same way. And that would have been a scandal to many Romans. I mean, the idea that the lower classes are welcome, 
or and that the accomplished that they don't have an inside track in this new club that offended Roman sensibilities. But Paul says, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to proclaim that message. Why? Because I know it works. It's the only way to get into your heart and to rescue you from God's wrath, for you to hear the good news that it's free. And if it's free, that means everyone can have it. And that would have been offensive. He might have been tempted to be embarrassed about that, but he wasn't. Furthermore, there's another way the gospel would have been offensive in, in ways we might be embarrassed about it. The Romans would have despised the idea that a crucified Jew was the Lord of the universe. If Rome crucified you, that meant you were weak. That meant you were a loser. It, it, it bugs me still when I watch basketball and, they, and, and teams never help the other team up when they fall down, like to take a hard foul and each team only helps their own people up. Why? Do you have to demonstrate, you know, I'm not going to help you? Well, just expand that in a great dimension. You know, if Rome beat you, man, they beat you. You're a loser. You're conquered. You're dominated. This Jesus, he's a loser in the eyes of the Romans. And to think that God would take a loser and actually say, no, he's the winner. I'm going to vindicate him. I'm going to defend him. Well, that would have been unthinkable to the Romans. It would have been a stumbling block. God would have had to have changed their minds to accept that. And lastly, of course, Rome would have also regarded the gospel as a threat. To maintain that, excuse me, to maintain that Jesus is Lord means that Caesar is not. Now he may have a sphere of authority that God has given him. Jesus himself said that with the coin and the question about taxes. He's got a sphere of legitimate authority, but he is not Lord of the world. And so you don't give him your loyalty before God gets loyalty. He and his interests don't consume you. God's kingdom does. And you certainly don't participate in the emperor worship. And all the Romans heard when they heard that was, okay, these people are disloyal to the state. They're a problem. But despite all those obstacles, Paul has great confidence in the gospel message. He stakes his eternal well being on it. He's left the comfort of his own self-righteousness. You know that well-known passage in Philippians 3? I, I thought my obedience to the law would get it done, but I now reject that. I regard that as rubbish. And, and he left the comfort of his goodness. He left the comfort of his self-righteousness. We, we often think of unbelievers as, as maybe shaken in conscience, and some are, but others aren't. Some are very comfortable. I know I've done enough. It can be scary to leave that comfort zone, but Paul says if you do, you will never be disappointed. If you trust in Christ, you will never be put to shame. So friend, if you are in Christ, you have that foundation and you have that acceptance and you have that safety and security. And you don't need anyone's approval and acceptance. So you don't have to stay in a toxic relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend or just a friend in order to be accepted. And you don't have to labor for the approval of that employer or that family member if it means compromising the gospel. And to get where we were going with this statement, you don't have to be, you shouldn't be embarrassed to identify with Christ. Why? Because he will never disappoint you. If you stake your life onto him and you make pleasing him your life's goal 
And you shape your life decisions about college and work and church and retirement. You shape them into a way where they can accomplish the goal of pleasing God. You will never be disappointment or disappointed. And as a church, if we stake our identity and our mission and our driving force on the gospel, we will accomplish the goals of Christian ministry. We don't have to rely on our ingenuity and emperor, what we do ultimately to see God accomplish his purposes in our church and in our lives. Because the gospel brings freedom from shame and disappointment. So second idea then, the only other idea today, confidence. We have confidence in the gospel that frees from condemnation. Freedom from shame, freedom from Condemnation, verse 17. How can the gospel bring salvation to everyone who believes? Because, as Paul says in verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel can save everyone. Because the gospel brings righteousness to everyone who believes. Simple truth here. Let me just define some of the important words. What do we mean by the righteousness of God? Now, this is one of those phrases in Paul. It's very thick. It has one specific idea here. But it also connects to several other ideas. Let me explain what I mean by that. First, simply, the main idea... The word righteousness that often refers to a status you have because you satisfy a standard. If you conform to the standard, you are righteous. So Jesus told the Pharisees, on the outside you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It looks like you do everything right. But the truth is you don't. So it looks like you check the boxes, but you don't. You don't actually satisfy the standard. Same idea in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke writes, "...to some who were confident of their own righteousness." And look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. They were confident they had satisfied the standard. If you do what is right, you are righteous. That's the biblical idea. You have status when you satisfy the standard. Now, unfortunately for us, when it comes to satisfying ultimate standards, we come woefully short. The ultimate standard is God's holy character. And he expresses that in his holy law. And none of us can live up to that standard. That's why when Moses asked God, Lord, let me see your glory. God says, you can't see my face. No one may see me and live. I mean, not only do we have a creator-creature distance, We have a holy God and sinful man distance. And if you try to mix those without cleansing, if you try to mix those without some kind of forgiveness, it brings death. 
But again, this is what makes the good news of the gospel sound so good. Because in the gospel, God has provided righteousness. He provides a way for you to have the right status. You can never get it on your own. In fact, you're already in debt, so don't even try. It is given freely by God to those who believe. And he has done it all through the work of Christ. And that actually brings us to the next dimension of this phrase. It's a status God gives you. But how can he give you that status? He can give it to you because of what he's done to provide it. He has acted to save. And that will bring you into a right relationship with God. So listen just to Isaiah 51.5. God says, My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And a few other verses from the Old Testament, they kind of tie the idea of righteousness and salvation together. So when Paul says here in Romans 1.17, when he says God's righteousness is revealed, he has in mind that big idea, God's end-time saving activity. It has now been manifested. And the result is you can have a right status with God by faith. That is what Paul is doing here. In fact, you notice that word revealed? That has Old Testament ideas. The end times have come. God's final actions have been revealed. When God promised in the Old Testament, hey, one day I'm going to show up, I'm going to save my people, I'm going to vindicate my people, Paul is saying that has now happened. The end times have come. Jesus Christ has brought about God's salvation and God's righteousness. And how then do you get that status? How do you come to enjoy that salvation? The end of verse 17, where Paul says, The righteousness of God is revealed from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. How do you get that right standing? By faith. Faith alone. That's what Paul means by that phrase, from faith to faith. It can mean from first to last, faith from start to finish. Or it can mean the faith that every person has in common with every other righteous person. Faith, whoever you are, it's by faith. Whatever the exact nuance is, the idea is faith is central. Faith is primary. And when it comes to getting this right status, you get it by faith alone. And to prove that, Paul cites Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. And I'm not going to give you all the details of Habakkuk. Great book. Great story. Here's the summary. Here's what you need to know about Habakkuk. Kind of like with Isaiah, the Israelites were being oppressed. The Babylonians were coming against them. And they had no idea how they were going to escape. And God simply said, trust my promises. Those proud people, those Babylonians, they trust their might. But the righteous person, he'll live because he trusts in 
God. And so it was with the Jews of Paul's day, so it was with the Gentiles of Paul's day, and so it is with us in our day. We need to trust the promise of the gospel. That is what will deliver you from your sin. That is what will deliver you from God's wrath. That is what will give you a right status with God. Ultimately, Rome was not their enemy. The Gentiles were not their enemy. Their sin was their enemy. And their sin was going to hijack even good things like the law. You come to a sinner and say, well, here, do this and everything will be okay. Sin will take over that like a cancer. The only solution is faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and let me just define that basic concept. You may wonder, well, how do I do that? Well, what does faith look like? How can I be saved? John Calvin put it best. He said, we compare faith to a kind of vessel, a cup, because we are incapable of receiving Christ unless we are emptied and come with open mouth to receive his grace. Christ is like a cup. And you're like a baby or a thirsty person in the desert. Faith is drinking that cup. You need the water of life and you simply receive it from your Savior. That is how you can be saved. And lastly, if you're a Christian, the gospel assures you you can trust God for the future. Habakkuk was looking at the state of God's people He saw a sinful nation and he said, God, you've got to judge us. But then God said, okay, I'll judge you with the Babylonians. And he goes, okay, hold up. They're worse than we are. So Habakkuk, what is he discouraged about? The state of God's people. He's worried about attacks from the outside. And he's even wrestling with the integrity of God's character. God, how can you do that and be righteous? He worried about all those things. And what did God tell him? You just trust me, all right? I got it. The righteous live by faith. The righteous by faith live. And I think the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism best summarizes what Paul has expressed here regarding our confidence in the gospel. I close with this. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's give thanks to God. Let's pray.